morning, everybody. How are we doing? What, a, what an awesome day, huh? So amazing. Like if winter was like this every day, I could handle five months, three months of it maybe. <clears throat> okay, we, we're gonna, uh, we got a lot of plowing to do today. Um, we're starting a new series uh, called The Minor Prophets. Minor Prophets, anybody? <laughs> All right. Um, 12-week series. We're going to go six weeks. It's going to be in two parts. We're going to break it up with then looking at the I Am statements in John's Gospel, leading us up to Easter, and then do the next part after that. Now, the reason why there wasn't much of a response to Minor Prophets, uh, if I had to guess, is this is a part of our Bible that we skip over, other than maybe taking a verse here and there that applies to Jesus. Uh, most of us in this room probably know very little about the minor prophets. In fact, right now you're like, what are the minor prophets? Um, if I'm honest, uh, personally, I, I am uncomfortable in this part of the Bible uh, for two reasons. Uh, number one, stylistically, it intimidates me. There's very little narrative. I love narrative. Dense poetry, uh, strange imagery, all this flower, flowery language. Uh, the style itself is very difficult. Uh, but I think even more than that, uh, it, it's the content. The prophets, it's, it's almost like they take a two-by-four out and just start hitting God's people with it again and again and again. And so, why the prophets? I feel like I need to make a little bit of a case here. <clears throat> Number one, they make up almost a third of our Bible. So if we take our Bible seriously, we can't go around this part of the Bible. Second, so much of Jesus' teaching comes right out of the prophets. It's based on the prophets. Uh, living water, the, the concept of the good shepherd, the son of man, the suffering Messiah, being born again, the great day of the Lord, uh, this all comes out of the prophets. Probably most importantly, why we need to study this, our world needs prophets. The church, maybe more than ever, especially in the West, needs to hear the prophets, uh, because here's what the prophets do. The prophets have the guts to say what no one else dares say. They don't say the thing that we want to hear. They say the thing that we need to hear. And if I even look at my own life, uh, my parents, coaches, teachers, the people who have shaped me into anything that I am today, who have influenced me, who have, who have given my life some leverage and, 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 and any kind of like muscle, not physical muscle, but just fortitude and strength and, and, and roots. It's not the people who just said the things to me that I wanted to hear. It was the, it was the people who, who said the hard things to me, spoke the hard truths in my life. And there's this concept today that literally blows me away. I mean, our grandparents, who 
endured depressions, world wars. And to think today, in light of everything we have, we have this thing called safe space that, that people are, are longing for. And if safe space is what we think we need to have, it'll only make us more self-indulgent, entitled, selfish. There's a proverb, Proverbs 27, verse 6, that says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. The prophets are our friends. We need to hear what they have to say to us. And so uh, we are going to start on, on, on this uh, today, and, and, and maybe more than anything, let's stop thinking about our faith in this individualistic me and God thing. God has a cosmic purpose for his people. He always has. Our theme verse, to be a chosen people, God picked us to be a holy nation, set apart, distinct, to be a nation of priests, people who have the presence of God and priest the presence of God into the world. We are the garden of God. And our role in this world is to bring this garden, make the whole world a garden. We just finished Numbers. And we saw how, how God made uh, them into this garden where he lived and he dwelled. Uh, but that wasn't the end for them to be in the desert. Their purpose was to put them in the promised land. And the question when they get in the land is this. Will they be faithful? Will they be wholehearted to God? Will they protect and preserve the garden, something Adam and Eve couldn't do? And will they make the whole world a garden? And if you know the narrative, the train gets off the tracks in a real hurry. And it's not just detrimental for God's people, it's detrimental for the whole world. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. That means that if we're not light, or if we hide the light, the world's gonna go dark. So why the prophets? The, prof the prophets call us to what we need to be, to why we're here, and the prophets speak the voice of God. So much is at stake. So we're gonna start, uh, we're gonna step into this today. Um, minor prophets, okay? Some of you are like, who are the minor prophets? Well, let's go to our table of contents. I don't know if you know this, but your Bible actually has a table of contents. It is a book, it is a story. And if you look at the books of the Bible, um, you have an Old Testament and then you have a New Testament. Go to the Old Testament section and then find Hosea. In my Bible, it's in the third column, and you see all those names, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, all the way down to Malachi. Those are what we call the minor prophets. Minor not because they're less than, minor just because these books are, are, are small. Um, smaller than the major prophets, 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, um, obviously they're not called the minor prophets. Uh, that's something the Christian church has um, attributed that name to them. Uh, in, in the Hebrew Bible, it's just one book, all 12, one book, one Torah scroll. And the title of that scroll or that book is The Message of the Twelve. Um, so today, we are going to start in uh, Hosea, who begins uh, the message of the Twelve. Um, to understand the prophets, you have to understand that most of what they are saying is they are speaking into their time. They are not speaking way out into the future. A few things uh, are, are, are for way out there in the future, but most of what they're saying is they are speaking to their time. And so to understand the prophets, you have to understand the time in which they are speaking. So how do I like, make this really pithy and efficient? Um, Israel has now been in the land, in the promised land, for 400 years. Almost from the beginning, they have been sowing seeds of destruction. Probably the most destructive seed that they will sow is the civil war that will happen. This creates a north and south. You see this throughout history. It's part of our history. Um, we've had have a north and a south. We, we've had uh, a civil war. You have Korea, uh, North Korea, South Korea. Um, th this kind of narrative plays itself out. Uh, Israel didn't have an Abraham Lincoln to keep the whole thing together, which is why when you go to Hosea, the first verse lists the kings of Judah and the king of Israel. Um, that's because you have a Judah and Israel. It's been split into two. The north is called Israel. The south is called Judah. And, and this division will be detrimental. Jesus said it himself. He said, a house divided cannot stand. Especially when you consider that God took this, this people, placed them in the center of the ancient world, because that's where God wants his people to be, and Israel exists in that place, to put this in animal terms, as a mouse, surrounded by cats and lions. The cats and lions at this time are Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Egypt. Hosea writes at a time when the cats are asleep. They've taken a long nap which has allowed for Israel and Judah this time of peace and massive prosperity. In fact, if you look at Hosea 1, the, the king Jeroboam II, which is the time uh, that Hosea is addressing this, and he's addressing it mainly to the people of Israel. Um, Jeroboam II is a make Israel great again kind of king. Some of you caught that. <laughs> he expands Israel's borders. He ushers in this golden age, the roaring 20s. And how did this turn out for Israel? Well, let me give you some of Hosea's snapshots. Hosea 10, verse 1. Put this on PowerPoint. 
Israel was a spreading vine. Again, the prophets are gonna use imagery. Spreading, expanding, growing, and brought forth fruit for who? Herself. That is not the vision that God had for his people. His vision is that they would bring forth fruit for the nations. And as his fruit increased, he built more altars, and his land prospered. He adorned his sacred stones. These altars and sacred stones are not gods to uh, the Lord, but we'll find out uh, what they're to in a little bit. That's one snapshot. A second snapshot, uh, Hosea 2, verse 8. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and the gold, which she used for Baal. Again, she or they is reference to Israel. Or how about Deuteronomy 7, verse 10? Oh, no, it went dark. (laughs) Hosea 7, verse 10. I know we had it last night. Well, does someone want to stand up and read it? Here we go. Oh, Israel's arrogance. Not only has Israel become greedy and selfish, Israel's arrogance testifies against him, but despite all things, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him. Or how about this snapshot, Hosea 4, 1 to 2. And for some reason, Eugene, uh, what's his name? Who writes the message? Eugene Peterson. Um, his, his translation captures so well how the prophets would have been heard in their time. Attention, all Israelites, God's message, God indicts the whole population. No one is faithful. No one loves. No one knows the first thing about God. All the cussing, the lying, the killing, theft, and loose sex, sheer anarchy, one murder after another. This is what this peace and prosperity is producing in the nation of Israel. Here's the deal. Israel has not fully abandoned God. So when you go to Hosea 2, verse 11, and it talks about the celebrations, the yearly festivals, the new moons, the Sabbath days, and all her appointed feasts that Israel is still keeping. Israel's still going to church on Sunday. Israel's still celebrating Christmas, still celebrating Easter. Or Hosea 6, verse 6, um, a, a verse some of you know where God says, I don't desire sacrifices. I don't desire all, all, all your worship services. I desire hesed. I desire love, mercy, compassion. But the worship services are still going on. It's, it's like Elijah said a generation earlier to Israel uh, at, at that great showdown between Baal when all of Israel gathered. He started off by saying this, why do you waver, Israel? Literally, the word waver means dance. Why do you dance between two realities? One reality, one foot planted in God, going to church on Sunday, 
and one foot firmly planted in the world. And this is what the prophets are addressing. Now, God is going get, to get their attention. But how do, you get, how do you get someone's attention when they're living prosperous, self-indulgent lives? How, how, how do you, that's the pain of a pastor today. <laughs> I mean, how, how do we get the attention of our world? How do we get the attention of our nation? How do we get the attention of the people that we care about, our family? How do we get the attention of our friends? When you see that the path that they're on is not the right one, you know they're barking up the wrong tree, how do you do it? That's the prophet's. God is going to get their attention through the prophets. And it's not always going to be just through the things they say. Sometimes it's going to be through the shocking things that they do. God told Ezekiel, I want you to, in public, cook your food over human poop. That's kind of funny, isn't it? For 390 days. Ezekiel actually talked God out of that, which is interesting in and of itself. Um, Jeremiah walks around weeks with this huge cattle yoke strapped to his neck, just walking around, making his point. Isaiah, I don't know if you know this, literally walks around naked for three years. Hosea, chapter one, God says, go marry a whore. And that's literally how it reads. So Hosea, if you read this, went out and marries Gomer, who's a prostitute. He and Gomer settle into this marriage, but... At some point in the game, when you read this, Gomer misses her old life. Soon she has an affair. Over time, her secret life expands to this whole world of other lovers and sexual exploits. And soon, Hosea's wife, Gomer, is right back into prostitution. And look at verses 2, chapter 2, 5, and 8. She says, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and drink. See what's going on in her mind? She's prostituting herself to get the finer things of life. And then God says, you know, she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil who lavished on her the silver and the gold. But she is selling her body to get the material things that she wants. I'll tell you, this whole thing is not a metaphor, it's, it's real. And it's sad and tragic at so many levels. I mean, if you keep reading chapter one, Jose and Gomer have three children, but as you're thinking this through, it's hard to discern. Now, are these actually Hosea's children or not? 
Uh, in fact, Hosea names one, not mine. <laughs> that's quite a name, isn't it? But that's not mine. Um, but chapter 2, verse 4, I think, answers the question. They're called children of adultery. I thought about this this week. The, the, the path, the lifestyle of Gomer is, is really not that shocking, especially in the day in which we live. I mean, sadly, our world is full of Gomers. Gomers everywhere. We all know Gomers. Um, they're walking around our schools, they're, they're in our neighborhoods, they're in our places of work. They're men, they're women, they're young, they're old, all ages, who are just entangled in this destructive path. Gomer herself, and, her, and the path that she's on, isn't, isn't that shocking. Here's what's shocking, or maybe not even shocking, but tragically sad is that God is projecting Gomer onto Israel. Israel, this is who you are. Israel, this is what you have become. In fact, Hosea 5 verse 4 says the spirit of prostitution is in Israel's heart. And I think Eugene Peterson uh, just captures uh, this state of, of sexual addiction that God is using to say about Israel in, in, in chapter 4, uh, 10 through 14. Listen to how he puts this. It's the long one, right at the beginning. There you go. They'll eat and be hungry as ever have sex and get no satisfaction. They walked out on me, their God, for a life of rutting with whores. Wine and whiskey leave my people in a stupor. They ask questions of a dead tree. They expect answers from a sturdy walking stick. <laughs> Drunk on sex, they can't find their way home. They've replaced their God with their genitals. They worship on the tops of mountains. They make a picnic out of religion. Under the oaks and the elms on the hills, they stretch out and take it easy. Before you know it, your daughters are whores and the wives of your sons are sleeping around. But I'm not get going after your whoring daughters or the adulterous wives of your sons. It's the men. It's the men who pick up the whores that I'm after, the men who worship at the holy whorehouses, a stupid people ruined by whores. You've ruined your life, Israel. That captures how God's people in God's time would hear a prophet. Graphic imagery. And it's this graphic imagery to describe Israel's sin, which we need to know is broader than sexual. Because we also need to know that when you read the prophets, the prophets use the image of prostitution or lying down as a whore to describe Israel's main sin which is the sin of idolatry. Idolatry, of course, includes sexual immorality, but it's, it's, it's much more broader than that. So what is idolatry? Idolatry is when anything becomes more important than God. An idol is anything that absorbs our heart and imagination more than God. Anything that we seek to give us what only God can give. 
Do you have that in your life? An idol is anything we look to other than God to get our sense of worth and value, to heal that ache that's in our soul, to fill the emptiness that's in our life. It's anything that we look to other than God to feel loved, to to feel satisfied where where our true joy, our true satisfaction comes from. Now, now you might right now think, you know, that's really not that big of a deal to look to other things as a substitute for God. But the Bible would say those other substitutes, whatever those things are, are, those are your lovers. And you're in bed with those things. Because Israel, which also includes us, we are in a marriage. We're in a marriage with the living God. God is a husband to us. And, and this marriage itself is the garden. It, it, it's it's the, the relationship with God that needs to be cultivated, that needs to be guarded, that needs to be preserved, that needs to be protected. The first commandment, which is the most important commandment, God says, you shall have no other gods, no other lovers, He says, you shall not bow down to them, you shall not worship them, which means if we don't worship God, we will worship something else. And I like how John Calvin puts this. He said, our hearts are like idol factories (laughs) because the human heart has been made to worship. And think about how our world right now is just set up with just all these things, all these substitutes that are just right there for the taking. Things that we can look to and turn to to give us only what God can give. I mean, money, sex, power, those are the three biggies. But the human heart can turn anything into an idol. We can turn a job, a hobby, a sport, pleasure, our kids, avoiding pain, a gadget, needing comfort, fashion. We can turn a cause, politics, ministry, our reputation, our need for human approval, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a friend. These idols can consume us where we end up spending so much of our time, so much of our energy, so much of our resources without even giving a second thought. And see, the reason why God uses such graphic imagery to talk about idolatry is because sexual desire is something that we can understand. We, we, We see the force that is there, but I don't think we see the force of idolatry or its seriousness. I mean, think about it from this angle. No one's gonna make a big deal about you being in bed with your job, being in bed with a hobby, being in bed with a sport, but if someone found out that you're in bed with a prostitute, but to God, it's all the same. Because idolatry is spiritual adultery. This is why... (laughs) When the church puts scarlet letters on people, you see how hypocritical that is? 
It's like pointing one finger at someone, four fingers are pointing back at yourself. There is no scarlet plate. There is no place for scarlet letters in the church because if there were, we'd all have to wear one. <laughs> all of us. Because we've all played the whore. And here's what I don't want us to do today. I don't want us to be like Israel. We're just blinded by the idolatry that's in our lives and, and, and where we can't see the destructive power in it. Because over time, Idolatry, it will destroy us, it will ruin us, and it will ruin the, the God calling and, 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 and our God-given destiny that God's placed on us. It did Israel. And look at Gomer. I mean, 2 verse 7 says, this is just a sad verse. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then, they will, then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first for I was better off than now. In other words, she's come to the realization, which we all will at some point in the game, where barking up that tree, not gonna deliver. Going down that path, it's gonna be ugly. Maybe I can get my old life back. But she doesn't. It only gets worse because by the time you get to chapter three, Gomer literally is standing on an auction block at an auction, being sold, probably standing there in all her humiliation, naked, for a price, half the price of a slave. And this is God's warning through Hosea to Israel. Israel, you are on that path. You are barking up that tree. You have become Gomer. How about us? Have we? Now here's what we can't miss. We can't miss the larger point. Because the larger point throughout the Bible is not about us, it's about God. Abraham Heschel, who's, who's just this great Hebrew mind of the Hebrew text, um, writes, I think, the magnum opus on the prophets. It's literally called The Prophets. Um, and this is what he says about Hosea. He says, one thing is clear, this event stirred and shocked the life of Hosea regardless of its effect upon public opinion. It concerned him personally at the deepest level and had a meaning of highest significance for his own life. And as time went by, Hosea became aware of the fact that his personal fate was a mirror for divine pathos, that his sorrow echoed the sorrow of God. It's kind of like just as God asked Abraham, Abraham, hey, for three days, can you get in my shoes? Would you take your son, your only son, Isaac, on a three-day journey to Mount Moriah, and would you offer him as a sacrifice? I mean, that's the whole story of the Bible. 
And God calls Abraham his friend. Abraham, for three days, would you walk in my shoes? Hosea, I'm a husband. Would you walk in my shoes? Would you marry what I'm married to? Go marry a whore. And Hosea does. And, and, and some of you in a room this size are, are, are actually walking in those shoes right now. You, 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 you know. You know what God's feeling. Or for anyone who's married right now, I, I, I mean, I thought about this, so maybe I can ask you to think about this. Imagine today, tonight, your spouse came to you and said, I have to confess that for the last five years of my life, I've had a secret life and I've been having an affair. How would you feel? I mean, think about all the hurt, all the pain, the devastation. God, through this book, is shouting at us. I hurt. I hurt the way a husband hurts who's married to a woman who gets it on with every man she can. Have you ever sat with someone whose spouse has been unfaithful? And they go through the pictures, they go through the old wedding book, all the, the raging emotion. I mean, it, this book is a window into God's massive broken heart after everything, everything God has done for his bride, how much he loves his bride Israel, how much he has given of himself to his bride. He hurts. And I've, I've noticed this. I, I've noticed that, that people in life who have the capacity to, to, to love, to, to love well, to love passionately are also the people in life whose heart gets so hurt and broken. Think about God. Think about his massive heart. His massive love. I mean, Paul describes it. He says, oh, how wide and deep and high is the love of God. And so great is his hurt. I don't know what this does to you, but it tells me that God is, he's not a judge, he's not a boss, here are the rules, obey them. It tells me that God is first and foremost a lover. His love for us is passionate. It's not just this dutiful love, this stoic love that, 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 that he has to perfectly perform. It's, it's tender, it's, it's passionate, it's vulnerable. God absolutely desires us and he is deeply affected by us. Now think about sin in light of this. Sin isn't just breaking the rules. Sin is breaking God's heart. 
Sin doesn't just make God an angry king or an upset boss or a disappointed friend. Sin makes God a wounded lover. Yeah, I thought about my, my, my brother Kurt this week in light of this. Um, younger brothers grow up looking up to their older brothers a lot. Um, in high school, I just noticed he never drank. He never had parties or when my parents would go away. Like, I mean, he was so... And, Later in life, I just asked him, Kurt, why did you never drink in high school? And he didn't even have to think about it. He said, I just didn't want to hurt dad. I didn't want to hurt him. Do we think about sin in that way? Now, throughout the whole book, not just this book, but all the prophets, we're going to feel this tension. It's going to be the tension between God's justice and God's mercy. God's justice is, is God's desire for Israel to, to reap what they sow. God will not be mocked. Uh, a, a, a person is going to reap what they sow. Um, it, it, it's for Gomer to get what she asked for with all the ugly consequences associated to it. That's God's justice, it's God's fairness. But then God also, at, at the core of his heart, is, is a word that we've talked about before. It's translated mercy, unfailing love, steadfast love, unconditional love. It's this Hebrew word, said. It's this dying, unconditional, loyal to the death kind of love. And it said is all throughout Hosea. It's it's. What God says, Israel, you lack it. And it's what God has in spades. I mean, this is the tension of the whole Bible. It's, it's, it's God's justice. It's God's mercy and grace. And it's like, in the end, what is going to win? And when you understand this from, from God being a husband who is love smitten with this bride who's been unfaithful, and if you've been in that place or you know people who have been in that place, in one sense, their heart is like, yes, I want them to get everything that they've chosen. But the other part is like, I love them. I want them and I'll forgive them and have mercy on them. That's God's tension. What's gonna win? Well, you find out what wins when you come to where this whole book goes, Hebrews 11. I'm sorry, Hosea 11. And God now switched metaphors from a husband of an unfaithful wife to the father of a rebellious son. And I'm telling you, I... Marital love is, is, is not natural. I mean, you need God's supernatural to, to be married. I'm just gonna say it like it is. Lib, sorry about that, wherever you are, if you're here. But love, love that a parent has for their children is just, oh. And so God now switches metaphors to talk about his said. I just wanna read it. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, out of slavery, I called my son. But the more, the more I called Israel, 
the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to the images. It was I who taught Ephraim. Ephraim is God's affectionate name for Israel. It was I who taught Ephraim how to walk, taking them by the arms, and they did not realize. It was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck. I bent down to feed them. God is just remembering all all the journey with Israel of being a parent to them. Then then his justice side kicks in. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. How though? How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Sodom? How can I make you like Gomorrah? My heart is changed within me and my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. God's has said wins. His compassion, his love, his mercy. Israel, no matter what you have done, no matter what you have become, I cannot give you up. I cannot let you go. My heart burns for you. This is our God. And here's the deal. Apart from God's has said and knowing it personally, we're, we're all Gomer. And maybe you aren't a whore standing on an auction block, but Paul says, I'm a slave sold into sin. We all have other masters. We all have these idols that we turn to, to save us, to heal us, to give us true joy and our sense of worth and meaning in life, to make a name for ourselves. And in Gomer's humiliation, if you go back to the chapter three, God now is gonna say to Hosea, Hosea, as she is standing on that auction block, would you go to the auction and buy her back? Would you redeem her? Would you bring her back to yourself? Because Israel, in the same way, I'm going to allure you. I'm going to woo you, says God. I'm going to bring you back to myself. I'm gonna give you your life back. And and this culminates in 2 verse 19, where God says to Israel, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in my chesed, in my compassion, my love, and my mercy, in my loyal, undying love, and you will know me. There's a movie that came out about 15 years ago called Three Season. It's a movie set in Vietnam just after the Vietnam War. And this, this man falls in love with a young Vietnamese woman the man himself is very poor. He's a rickshaw driver, you know, one of those uh, bicycle, taxi, uh, cab kinds of things. And the woman that he falls in love with, too, is, is, is very poor. But she tries to remedy her poverty by selling herself into prostitution. So every night, she goes into these fancy hotels with her customers, hoping that someday this, that's the kind of life that she will have, that she will be afford, afford such a life. Um, but... As the story progresses, her prostitution is slowly killing her. It's, it, it's causing her to literally almost die emotionally. 
And every, every day, this, this poor rickshaw driver takes her there and waits late at night to, to, to bring her home and take her back into the terrible part of the neighborhood where she lives. And one day as he's taking her back, he asks her, you know, how much, does, how much does a night with you cost? And she says, $50. And of course, that's way too much money. He's too poor for that. But soon thereafter, he wins a cycling race and the prize for the race was $50. So he purchases her services for one night and brings her to that hotel and asks her to get the nightgown on, asks her to lay down on bed. And he says, the only thing I want from tonight is I just want to watch you fall asleep. He purchased just this expensive dinner for her. She eats it. She falls asleep. She wakes up the next morning and he's gone. And now she can't go back to prostitution. <laughs> because for the first time in her life, she has experienced true love. Love that didn't exploit her, but love that exalted her. Love that didn't treat her like a prostitute, but love that treated her like a princess. She never experienced that before. We are all that woman. Whether we've prostituted ourselves through sex or money or the need for human approval or, or whatever it is, but the God of the universe is a husband and he will not let us go. And he became poorer than a rickshaw driver. And he gave up everything to get us. The one with all the power didn't use it to exploit us, but gave it up so he could free us and heal us. And you see how he did it? Do you see him hanging on a cross for you? Pilate said, behold the man. The gospel says, behold your husband. Do you know this love? Have you experienced this love? Because when we turn to this God and throw all of ourselves at him as he throws all of himself at us, the beast becomes beautiful and the prostitute becomes a princess. Let's pray. Before we pray, actually, this is right in the heart of Hosea, Hosea 6, and it is the response. It is the response that God wants from our hearts. In silence, let's just pray this into our hearts.